We're going to read verses 12 to 31. So we get Ehud and Shamgar. So we are going through this series on judges to see the, the different pictures of, of, of the judge who points to Jesus and, and this great salvation that we are given in Jesus. The, even in the Old Testament, God was preparing the way for us to see what he would do through his son. And so let's read it. It's Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And we'll dig in. This is the word of our God. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet in, of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there, their Lord, there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's pray. 
Father God, you're, tell us that all of Scripture is God-breathed and comes from you, and so even this is for our good. And so I pray that you would show us how, how this is about us, how this is about Jesus and what we must do. So your word is living and active like a double-edged sword, piercing our innermost being. So show our motivation, show our thoughts, show our weak love in comparison to your great love for us. Don't let us leave here the same today, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We just said in the prayer that as Christians, is what we say, all of the Bible is God-breathed. It is inerrant, without error. It is infallible, meaning it is trustworthy. It is without error, trustworthy, and true. And all of it is here, every nook and cranny, cranny to teach you, to train you in righteousness, to train you to be like Jesus. <laughs> and so even this one is for us as Christians and so we got to stop and ask and say, why in the world, out of all the stories in the history of Israel, did God want the church to know about Ehud and very fat Eglon? Right. Why? I mean, the short answer is to teach you about Jesus. But when you, when you hear this for the first time, it's especially in our easily triggered culture, I mean, it's just picking on everybody. Right? I mean, think about all the the stuff that you could be bothered by. If you're a left-hander, right? Any left-handers here today? <laughs> We've got a few. Right? Ehud is a lefty, and he is branded as, you're going to see, he's weak. And Ehud's character doesn't seem like somebody you want your, your kids to imitate, because it seems like he's using lies and deceit to assassinate Eglon. Then you have the poor Moabites. I mean, these guys have been mocked for thousands of years. Right, but they're very fat king. I mean, they're poor self-esteem. I don't know if there are any Moabites among us, but they're portrayed here as not the sharpest crayon in the box. And so you got their king, who's big and a bit slow, and his servants aren't very bright. And then you've got, the, of course, the dung came out. Why is that recorded? I mean, it's, you're supposed to laugh, and I think that's why this story is recorded. So don't feel guilty laughing because God recorded this so God's people could laugh after they've been rescued. Right? So some of what God uses, I'm going to call it a, I don't know what else to call it, it's a theological poop joke. I mean, it's, it's in slow motion, it's, it's in excruciating detail. But you're going to find out later that we're the, we are, uh, it's not aimed at Eglon, it's going to come back around to us. So we're going to turn out to be the butt of that joke. So why is this here? It starts out as unnecessary and violent. It seems to be, but it's going to show you God's surprising salvation, and we're going to see Jesus in surprising ways. And so let's look at it, because as you get the details, the story comes to life. And uh, let's dig in. So first point, it's in your bulletin, is we have the little calf and the left-handed Savior. And our story begins, as they all do in Judges, with Israel. They are God's sin-addicted people. They're doing what is evil again in the sight of the Lord, and God's response is one of jealous anger and justice. He strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, and so I don't know how good your geography is, but if you know generally where Israel is, Moab's to the southeast, so if you're looking at me, it's down this way, right? They cross the, the Jordan River and come into the Promised Land, 
And so Eglon, he grabs the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they have this coalition, and they retake the city of Palms, which is most likely is Jericho. Right, so Jericho is where the, the conquering of the promised land began in Joshua, and so Moab is undoing that, that event. And the Moabites oppress Israel. They put them to forced labor, and it sounds like they're just farming in the hills. They don't have the, the luxurious plains to, to where, where good farming would be. And so they are eking out an existence serving King Eglon. And so let's, let's look at Eglon because he is a character. His name means calf, right? It's a, it's a reference to a type of cow. And so you have this picture of the, the cow king, the calf king, who has a summer palace in Jericho. And he's gotten it through cruelty, through oppression, through brutality. He is God's instrument used to get Israel to come to their senses and see that God is a better and more just and more gracious ruler than Eglon, right? So if Eglon means calf, a calf is a small young cow. I think you're supposed to see the, the irony there, right? Israel is bringing tribute to Eglon, and this idea of tribute, it's not gold and silver. They're not draining their bank accounts to come bring gold bars to the king. It's the literal word for grain. Right? They're bringing him carbs. <laughs> They're bringing him a grain offering. I mean, I know he should have gotten some fiber. He should have been brought kale, but this is, this is the tribute he demanded. And what's amazing is the word for tribute used here is the actual word used in Leviticus to describe the worship of God's people for God himself, a grain offering. So you can read about the grain offering in Leviticus 2. Right? And what a grain offering was, we, we, we do the functional equivalent with, with the offering plate. Right? But a grain offering is responding to God's goodness and to his kindness and to his salvation by giving a portion of your food back to God. And it would go to the priests who would then be able to eat. So it's just a way of saying, God, thank you, because you take care of my daily bread. You provide for me. You're a good father. You feed your children. And the sad part is here is Israel, God's people, they're bringing a grain offering to Eglon the king. And so what you're supposed to hear is Israel worshiping a calf, calling it the Lord, treating him like God himself. And it's not working out well for them. They have substituted the Lord for a created thing. It's idolatry. Bringing their worship to somebody who is not God. And so, pause there because this teaches us something. Because this is what people are like. This is what it means to be human, to be called a, a sinner in, in the scriptures. You're, it's, it's giving thanks to other things and to other people other than your creator for giving you your daily bread. It sounds so simple. But if this is God's world, and the scriptures say it is, he made everything. He's the one who sends the rain and the sun, who appoints the seasons to arrive every year, who causes food to grow as a gracious and loving gift, not just to his favorite people, but to everybody, the just and unjust. Right? The terrorists and the Christians. Right? The religious and the non-religious all are provided daily bread by this God who appointed it to be so. 
And so, he does that for people who don't even acknowledge him. This is a gift of grace. It's common grace. And so one, uh, one writer named Gene Veith points this out, this, just to help bring this to the modern world. When you pray the Lord's Prayer and we ask God to give us this day our daily bread, God does it. The way he gives us our daily bread is through the vocations of farmers, millers, and bakers, and you could add truck drivers, factory workers, bankers, warehouse attendants, and even that lovely lady or man at the checkout counter. Virtually every step of our economic system contributes to that piece of toast you had for breakfast. And so when you thank God for your daily bread, it's right to do so. <laughs> so do you have that attitude of every good gift comes from my Father in heaven, and that there is nothing, not even my breakfast, not even my breakfast cereal, that does not come from our Father above. And so you can see it in our text, when Israel takes grain offering to Eglon, it's a deep insult to God. To give thanks to anything other than the one who provides for you is a slap in the face to your creator. It's It's brutal. I mean, think of this illustration. Think of the attitude of the athlete who finally gets to the Olympics and they, they pass the test, they're standing on the podium, they've won the gold, and usually they turn around with tears of gratitude and wonder that their parents would be so patient for those 20 years driving them to practice and, and the accolades go on and on and they're right to do so. And now imagine that same athlete saying, I'd like to thank me for getting me here. Or even worse, looking at the parents and saying, I didn't really need you, I did this on my own. It doesn't matter that your DNA made this possible. <laughs> the point is, idolatry is an insult. Even something as mundane and, and simple as saying, thank you to God for my, for my dinner, is, is, is idolatry. Because idolatry is to know there is a God deep down that there's a being out there who made the world, but to not honor him as God or to give thanks to him as God. It's painful. God hurts. Now, here comes the funny commentary. So you have the picture, Israel's bringing grain and bread, this grain offering to feed the little cow king. And the grain offerings were designed in Leviticus to be cooked and to give off a pleasant aroma to the Lord. I mean, I think there's an irony you can see about Eglon who's not going to give off a pleasant aroma. Right? Israel is bringing tribute to the little cow king, fattening him up for the slaughter. Eglon eats too much. That's why it says he's a very fat man. For 18 years, he's living off carbs. He's outgrowing his throne. He lives for comfort. He lives for ease. He's self-indulgent. And I know some of us are uncomfortable with the way the Bible talks about it but it does help to know that the Bible doesn't idolize our bodies the way we Americans do. You'll see where the joke goes, but in, a, in the Bible's world, to have a little um, weight around your midsection is a sign of God's blessing. And so it's not necessarily just trying to insult Eglon uh, by calling him fat, it's showing he is, he is overly blessed to the point where he is indulgent. He's, he's become the picture of the, the, the sloth in the Proverbs. 
You know that picture of the guy who's in Proverbs and it says he's so lazy he can't get the food from his dish into his mouth? I mean, it's, you have this idea of this, this person who just has too much stuff. He is very affluent. And so when, when it talks about oh, Eglon being very fat, it's not, it's not insulting us the way we use that term to insult other people. Right? Song of Solomon. The husband says of his bride, your belly is like a mound of wheat. Right? So there you go. There's some free marriage counseling for you. Because <laughs> right? the, the ancient world, extra weight is a sign of blessing. I mean, if you're in Burundi, as the bride, you're hoping to uh, be called a cow, just to put all that in perspective. So just because it's a different culture doesn't mean it's wrong. Now, the point is, calling the little cow a very large cow is painting a theological joke, mocking Eglon's gluttony, but it's going to turn around and say, Israel, how could you serve somebody like this for 18 years? What is wrong with you that you were willing to fatten him up and then you couldn't escape from him now that you see what his character is like? Right? How can you not outrun the ancient job of the hut? I, mean, I don't know how else to describe it. He's, he's not a fierce warrior king. He's, he's indulgent. He's, not, he's become fat, dumb, and comfortable. And Israel is willingly wallowing in their misery content with the status quo, just bringing him worship because that's what we do. It's easier. So, how's that for a picture of addiction to sin, of unwillingness to change because it's just easier to serve those things that do make us miserable even when people tell us it hurts. That's pretty humbling. They kept a story for Israel to be humbled not to insult other nations. It's, it's more aimed at us. Because right? it shows you and me that my sin, it's not rational. It's slavery. Willingly choose to, to do things that Christ has given me the power to say no to. Calling out for rescue. So I'll give you a warning here. This is going to get personal. You're supposed to ask What's your Eglon? What is causing, what idols are causing misery in your life, yet you can't not feed it with your time and your energy and your affection? And some of the ways you go about diagnosing it, you can ask, well, what do I say? I have to have this in order to be happy. I have to have this thing in my life, blessing me, caring for me, feeding me. Where do you say my life is done without this? to use the words of the scriptures. Where you say, life isn't worth living if I don't have it. That's your Eglon. This is what idolatry looks like. It could be your career, it could be family, it could be, could be food, it could be comfort. I mean, this the whole idea of being affluent, that's what it means to be, this is where we are. But the portrait of Israel's idolatry in Eglon is, is, is a, it's, I'll put me in the shoes, it's, it's making fun of me saying, I prefer to be comfortable than to go to war against my sin. So, that's the picture of idolatry. I think we're supposed to see that our idols grow in girth as we starve ourselves to feed them, but they don't give anything back. They give us misery. Um, 
You know, it, it could be something you're, the, the pictures on the internet, it could be just this desire to not be alone. It could be, I, I really, really, really want my life to get better, and so I'm praying and praying and praying for lots of money, and you're just getting on that treadmill of climbing to the top, and it's, you know, the, the list goes on and on. The human heart is an idle factory. I don't know what that is for you. It's between you and Jesus. But the idea is idolatry does not lead us healthy. The idol gets big as we get thin, and it hurts. So, that is Eglon, the tiny cow king, the golden calf, fattened for the slaughter now. What does God do to, in response to that kind of insult where we love the things that God has made more than our creator? Well, in our context, it's Ehud, the left-handed sa- savior. After 18 years of slavery, Israel finally cries out for help. Right? If you're thinking in terms of addiction, this is that moment where you finally say, the problem is me, I can't fix me, I need to reach out to, to God to save me. And the Lord raises up Ehud, a Benjamite, a left-handed man, and there's some irony there that the, the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin just means the son of the right hand. And so you have a left-hander and a right-handed tribe. Right, so how many right-handed people are, are we here? You can just raise your hand. And then how many left-handed? I see three, <laughs> maybe four. All right. The idea is the right-handers were strong. Whatever you do with your right hand, if I write with my left hand, you would never be able to read it. If I shoot a, if I shoot a basketball with my left hand, it's embarrassing. All right, my free throws are airballed. Um, lefties... They're a minority under the human race, 10% or less. And Ehud, he's a lefty not by choice. It's either a, a birth defect. It just says his right hand is bound. We don't really know why. If, it was, if he was born that way, I mean, knowing the practice of pagan kings, they probably maimed his right hand so he couldn't fight. That's my guess. I'm not sure. We aren't, we aren't given too many details other than something is wrong with his right hand And if you can't use your right hand, you can't hold a sword. And if you can't hold a sword, you're not a threat. He can't fight. So you have this weak lefty, a southpaw, who who seems like he's not going to be of any use. And that's probably why he's the one delivering the tribute. Because he's not, you know, you're not going to send somebody who who looks like they could take out ten men by themselves to go next to the king. Because he looks like an assassin. You send... Ehud is raised up as a weak, left-handed savior. All right, and so Ehud, what he does is he makes a double-edged sword. It's sharp on both sides. It's about 18 inches long. I have an example here just to get the kids' attention. This is not quite 18 inches, but this is a, an African Maasai sword. It's, so if you go to about here to here, it's got two edges. And the idea is both sh- edges are sharp. It's going to do, do the damage. And so Eglon just, he's a left-hander, so he straps it here. And he must have baggy clothes. <laughs> but he's able to smuggle this double-edged sword past Moabite security. Right? They aren't the, the brightest security team. I imagine they got fired after this. 
But because he's left, left-handed and because he's weak, nobody thinks to check his right side. They don't pat him down. Right? TSA has better security. After the grain is delivered, Ehud sends everybody away. He turns back, and there's this, this note that he sees the idols at Gilgal, which is where the, the generations before came to faith and entered into a covenant relationship with God. I mean, it's like this little note that says, here are Israel's girlfriends at the place where they got married to God. It's a, it's a subtle smackdown on Israel. And then Ehud goes back to Moab and, and says, Oh, great king, I have a secret message for you. And Ehud, being the, or Eglon being the humble guy, says, This is going to be good news. I, I can't wait to hear this message. He clears everybody out. He's sitting up on his throne room in the roof where it's, it's cooler in the day. And then Ehud says, I have this secret thing for you, a secret message. It's from God. And one of the, the keys is he's not lying because the Hebrew word can be translated either word or thing. Right? We know it's a sword, but Eglon thinks it's a present. Or maybe it's just a word. Right? That God's going to... You know, Ehud's going to come to Eglon, and God's going to tell him, you know, may your kingdom last forever and ever, etc. And so, Eglon hears he has a word from God for him, a secret message. He stands up, he heaves his girth, and Ehud goes to action. He pulls the sword, drives it into his stomach, and it slows down. I don't know, it slows down into excruciating detail. The hilt goes in over the blade, the fat covers it up. And the sword comes out his backside, and the dung comes out, and that's why I said the title of the sermon is Holy Cow, Sin Stinks. Right. Somehow Ehud escapes. We don't really know how. Um, my best guess is uh, probably out the outhouse hole. So you have God's left-handed Savior willing to get the filth of our sin in order to deliver God's people. And the story just gets funny. I mean, you can hear the, the 12-year-old boys getting ready for the bar mitzvah just snickering, right? Because it smells like he's sitting on his other throne. And it, and it must have been a common occurrence because his servants behind this locked door smell their king and say, well, he must be on, on the toilet. And, uh, you know, he's, he's been hitting the grain tribute again. Another Pizza Hut all-you-can-eat buffet. And they just let it go. Until the point where it gets embarrassing. And then they get the key and find their king dead. And, and then by that time, Ehud's escaped and he's rallied all of God's people. Not all of them, but Ephraim, these people in the hill country. And they come down and they go to war. And God gives them the victory over these, over the Moabite soldiers and one other note, it's, it's either the soldiers are, are strong, but it's also the word to describe fat cows. Right? So in battle, these, these soldiers could be called strong, able, and vigorous, or they just could be chubby soldiers who are also eating with the king. Personally, this is my opinion. You can disagree with me, it doesn't matter, but it, it's probably the, the fat cow king and his chubby soldiers, and God gave them the victory. Either way, however you see it, God gave them the victory. And so you're left with, why is this here? What is this story for? Well, one commentator said, well, 
This is just really helpful. It's okay to laugh at where God has taken you from because you're laughing at your own foolishness, and that is a healthy thing to do, to take Jesus seriously and to not to take yourself less seriously. You also see when, you know, if it's a secret word from God for the king, the sword of justice, you see that God takes bullies seriously. Ralph Davis says it's a serious matter to crush God's people under the weight of oppression and cruelty, even if you are a big man like Eglon, for you may very well become the butt of one of God's jokes. And you're supposed to laugh a little bit and see anybody who rises up to oppress someone else, God will, def- God will come to their aid. No kingdom is safe when it thrives by starving others. Eventually, the violence will come back. This is, this is the law of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is God sending Ehud to rule, to give a word, the same way Eglon was ruling and, and by cruelty and the sword. Second, I think you're supposed to laugh. Israel had to be emo- PTSD after this. I mean, just all kinds of trauma. Bullies cause tear, tears, and the story is here to give some joy in the aftermath of serious consequence of sin. It's mocking their sin. Right? So you're supposed to enjoy the funny and surprising way God saves his people. God saves his people by getting them to smell what their false worship smells like, the dung of their offerings. So think of Eglon, dead on the floor, like smelling salts, trying to wake you and I up, trying to wake Israel up to say, this is what sin looks like. This is what sin smells like. Come to your senses. Cry out to God for help. You can't do this on your own. God is holy, high and lifted up, and it's an amazing thing that that he would send a deliverer to literally get involved with our disgusting, smelly mess. See, Israel is being commanded through story to rejoice in God's messy, rescuing grace. You're supposed to look at Eglon and say, how did I ever think that was a good idea? I was a fool. I didn't trust that God would, would give me what I need. And then lastly, you get to Ehud. The deliverer, of course, is a picture of Jesus. Because Eglon looked at the left-handed Savior the way we do in our pride and our sin, and you see, he didn't see anything threatening in the deliverer. He saw left-handed power. He saw weakness. Ehud does not look like he could do some damage. He appears weak. And you can hear echoes of what this future deliverer would look like from Isaiah 53. Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How many people looked at Jesus naked, being shamed, smelling like death, Bleeding from a crown of thorns, nailed to a tree, under the curse of the law, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everyone said, That is God's power as he died. This is our God who came to rescue us. This obviously is the one 
who upholds the universe by the very word of his power. This is the one I was created for. Nobody saw that when Jesus was crucified. Now the cross is God's surprising left-handed salvation accomplished through weakness, not through strength. That's what Ehud points us to. It's not how anyone expected. Jesus is the Holy One. And yet there he is on the cross in our filth, surrounded on two sides by, by thieves. They're both naked. And I don't want to gross you out, but it smelled like Eglon's death. I'll just put it that way. The uncreated became created to die a smelly death, to wake us up so that we could see what our sin does to us and to other people, and most importantly, to our God. You get another picture. Jesus' act of perfect loving obedience, even to death on a cross, the, the better ethood. His whole life was a perfect grain offering. He lived a life of tribute and thanks to God his Father for us. And when you see that kind of costly love of God and, and your neighbor, that's a sweet smell. <laughs> when you see that Jesus came to save his enemies through weakness, and that includes me. And that's the point of Judges over and over again is God has to amp up the surprising nature of salvation to wake up God's stubborn people. That's what Shamgar is all about. All right? Poor Shamgar gets no respect. He gets one sentence. But he's, he's, all we know about Shamgar is he's not a Hebrew and he went to war with a farming instrument, an ox goad. And somewhere off in the corner, he was killing Philistines and that protected Israel and God's sovereignty. Nobody would have thought that God would use foreign powers to protect his people through a farming instrument. And that's the point. God's means of salvation and the actual deliverer of the cross and Jesus Christ, they appear weak and foolish, but that is the only way to be set free from these sins that just do not go away. When you realize he loves you that much. See, the Jesus way is a complete reversal from the, the Eglon way. <laughs> the Eglon way is brutality. The Jesus way is service, even to the point of death on a cross. We got one more point, and it's, it's, it's quick. Say, holy cow, sin stinks. But it's, it's a surprising application. Right? We just read a historical story that points to the historical events of Jesus. True stories. And one of the things the New Testament does that helps us as Christians is that there is only one place in the Bible that talks about, a in the New Testament, that talks about a double-edged sword. And it talks about the scriptures. It's Hebrews 4.12. We read it this morning. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so what the writer to the Hebrews, I think, is what he's doing. Is he's taking this historical event and saying, okay, God's word is even more powerful and sharp and dangerous than what Ehud did to Eglon. And you can see how that would work, because in the story, Ehud had a word from God for Eglon, and it pierced him into his innermost being, into his heart, into his guts. 
God's word is the sword that pierces us to our innermost being and shows us what we are like, shows us what we are really serving, whom we love, reveals our thoughts and motivations, and it's meant to hurt sometimes. And it goes right after who you are. And we know who that word is. In the writer of the Hebrews, it's Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for our sins, you should smell Eglon being cleaned up. After making purification for our sins, he sits at God's right hand. And so God's word, the secret message from God to you, O sinner, is he is here to kill your sin by showing you the death of his son. And that is what goes after the motivations of your heart. He comes like a double-edged sword after you, after me. All right, so a good sermon every week is the pastor just jamming God's sword slowly in slow motion into your heart, going after your motivations for the past week or life. So you can smell yourself. (laughs) Say, where am I? What am I doing? Am I living for Jesus? Do I really believe that he loves me? Do I really believe that I stink this bad and I need cleaned up? To have God show you what you're really like, to hold you up like a mirror into the presence of God's word. And it's it's why it says, goes on to say in Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, what, what this story in Judges connected to Hebrews, it goes after the very motivations of your heart. Who are you serving? What are you serving? How's that working out for you? And when you have that sword, you feel it pierce your heart. What's supposed to pierce your heart is God's covenant, faithful, steadfast love that he would raise up a deliverer and he would be so gracious to show you who you are. Because a God who leaves you alone is not a God who loves you. <laughs> a God who leaves you alone is a God who stands back and says, you're on your own. We want a God who comes after us with that sword. The sword that comes out of the word, the, 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 the Jesus' mouth. Right? And the word, what it shows us, is Jesus died like Eglon, pierced for our transgressions to set us free. So what do you do to go after the motivations of your heart? How do you change? How do you f- set yourself free to tie all this together? I mean, I'm blasting you with images Look at Jesus taking God's judgment on a tree for you. He's not a fattened calf. He's the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. And the effect of that word right now is a gift of grace. It's pushing into your heart, going after your very identity. So that when he says, follow me, you'll run after him because you, you love him. Because how can you not love someone who would die for you like that? So conclusion, you're not going to find another king, another lord, another master, another god like Jesus. Every, every idol that you serve and live for is going to turn out like Eglon. It's going to make that god fat, dumb, and happy and leave you hungry, scrawny, and miserable. But Jesus, the god who is, the one who holds 
the entire universe together by the word of his power says, come and feed on me, my broken body. We feed on the one who was pierced for our transgressions. It's amazing. He, the idols say, serve. Work yourself to the bone and you get nothing. Jesus says, you have not served me, but I will serve you so that you will then in turn see my grace and respond and run after me. So, do you know how to do that to your own heart, to, to laugh at your own sin, to take yourself less seriously as you look at the cross, as you listen to Eglon and Ehud and, and see this weak, apparently weak salvation that turns out to be the power of God to set you free? And what happens is Jesus will say to you, follow me. And it, he'll give you that same weapon he used, his word. He'll put that sword into your hands. And what makes us Christians unique is we don't go with the sword of God's word running around slaughtering other people. Well, it's first and aimed at the Christian. That you would go after your sin, that you and I would repent first before we ever point that, that word at someone else. And see, in an age where religion is equated with violence, we are armed with God's secret message for the world that has now been made clear, as Paul called, says so. Christ died for sinners, of whom I am foremost. And that's what we go out into the world doing, equipped and armed, saying to others, change your mind. You're miserable now. I know what can fix that. His name is Jesus. He died for you. So <laughs> look at Eglon and pray that God would would wake you up and see the beauty of the cross. Let's pray. God, I pray you would help us not only see your grace, but smell it today, and that we would uh, be moved in the depths of our being to give up and turn our backs on these things that bring us harm, and that your spirit would make us into people who are faithful to you and lovers of our neighbors. So show us how to use your word as a sword that leads us first to repentance and then out into the world uh, telling others that Christ died for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.